It is Pentecost today on the Christian calendar, and this is uh, the day and time of year that Christians historically have celebrated uh, the birth of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So God in his person and character in revealing his triune nature, that was the incarnation where the second person of the Trinity was revealed, and at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the third person of the Trinity was revealed. And so the church historically has observed and celebrated this day. Now, the challenge was finding a text in the Psalms that comported with that, but I was fortunate enough that Psalm 51 is a, uh, one of several Pentecost texts, because as we're gonna see, as we read through this passage, David cries out, longs for, and yearns for the help of the Holy Spirit. It is only one of two places in the entire Old Testament that says the phrase, Holy Spirit. The other place is Isaiah 63.10. So let's read Psalm 51 together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, for the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God. Father, now we do thank you for this good word in Psalm 51. Let our hearts and our minds, Lord God, be convicted and convinced by the power of this prayer and of this psalm. And let it transform us that we may live differently than the way we came in. We pray for your empowering and unction now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Psalm 51 is... Uh, the most well-known of the penitential psalms. So in the psalms, there are different categories. 
There are psalms of repentance, psalms of praise, psalms of lament. And this psalm is a lament prayer over sin. And this is the most famous. Now, Luther observed that whoever called it a penitential psalm knew what he was doing because there's no greater example of true repentance in all of Scripture. Now, the basis of all penitential prayer is this simple sentence, I have sinned. You recall from the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee when they went into the temple, they both prayed, you remember that? And Jesus said, which one of them went away justified? It was the tax collector who went away justified, the one who on the surface was the rank sinner because he prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God responds to that. God responds to a recognition of our own sins. And so Psalm 51 is no doubt the fullest expression of that statement, I have sinned, in all of the Bible. Psalm 51 is King David's prayer of confession and plea for mercy to God for his sin with Bathsheba. Now maybe you've heard of the story of David and Bathsheba, and for those of you who haven't, I'll give you a brief background. But Israel was at war, and David stayed home, even though he should have been out with the troops. And one sleepless night, he walks out on his rooftop, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. And he has them call her to the palace, and he spent, she spends the night, and of course, we know what happened in the next morning she is sent home. There's only one problem. She's married to a man named Uriah. And Uriah is one of David's loyal, faithful soldiers. Time goes on and it is revealed to Bathsheba that she is pregnant. And David is made aware of it. It all has the makings of a soap opera. A lot of scripture is like that. There's so much drama in the Bible. <clears throat> David, realizing that it's all about to blow up in his face, he tries to cover up his sin, and he calls Uriah from the front lines to the palace, and he wants to give him a furlough. Uriah is thinking, what did I do to deserve this? And David says, why don't you go home and spend a few nights with your wife? Some plausible deniability, if you will, right? He's trying to avoid a scandal, and Uriah, being the good guy that he is, says, I can't go home when the troops are at war, and so he spends the night out in front of the palace guarding David. <laughs> what a guy. David realizes there's no way to get around it, and so he decides to have Uriah killed and talks to his general and says, during the heat of the battle, leave Uriah on the front lines and have everyone else retreat. And of course, Uriah is killed on the battlefield. It is a tragic and wicked, wicked act, even though David was a king. It's this example that when, uh, of a shepherd becoming um, a predator. The shepherd king of Israel is now preying on the sheep instead of protecting the sheep. 
Now David ultimately, after Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband, David ultimately takes Bathsheba as his wife. The plan seems complete. David has what he wants, and he thinks that his secret is safe. But there's just one thing. No sins are hidden before God. Let that sink in for a moment. None of your sins, none of my sins are ever hidden before God. God sees all things. God sees us. 1 Samuel 12 tells us that the Lord sends Nathan the prophet. Now, now just, just as a side note, uh, prophets and soothsayers and wise men in the ancient world often came along to kings and baptized what they wanted. So go find the seer, and they can give us a good omen for what we want to do, this new policy, this war we want to wage. And the biblical prophets are completely different from that because the biblical prophets, maybe you've heard this phrase before, speak truth to power. Have you ever heard that before? That comes from the prophets of Israel because they had an obligation to say what the Lord said. So it didn't matter how much they feared or revered the king, no matter how much power he had, they had to say what God said or else they'd be in trouble with God. And so the Bible is this unique, amazing picture into the ancient Near East, unlike anything else that exists, where the wise men, the, the prophets, they speak what God says, and sometimes that means a stern rebuke for a king who ostensibly could have that prophet killed and sometimes in the Bible, that happened. And so Nathan the prophet, obedient as he was, he gives this parable to David and he says, there were two men in a city, one was rich and one was poor, and the rich man, he had a whole host of cattle and livestock, a whole bunch of sheep. There was this poor man, and this poor man, well, he just had one small female lamb and he loved it and he'd raised it and he, him and his children grew up with this lamb. And this lamb was like a daughter to him, and he fed it, and this lamb drank from his cup. And one day a guest came in to stay with the rich man, and instead of taking a lamb from his own flock, he takes the only lamb of this poor man, slaughters it, and feeds it to his guest. And when David hears this, he is infuriated. He said, that man should die because he had no mercy. At the very least, he should pay back that lamb fourfold. And what did Nathan say? You, David, are the man. That man is you. And I can only imagine that what was up until that moment, this kind of foolproof, airtight plan that David had carried out in killing a man to take his wife, it's all exposed. It's all on the table now. Heaven and earth know what David did. It is as if God is saying, I know what you did, David. I know what you did. Now there's this immediate dilemma when we read this story and when especially unbelievers hear about this story of David and Bathsheba <clears throat> is there is this cognitive dissonance, this idea that David is supposed to be a man after God's own heart, a godly man who loves God, and yet he murdered somebody. How do we reconcile these things? He celebrates God's moral laws in psalm after psalm. 
He celebrates the commandments. I mean, David is like the cheerleader for God's commandments, for the law of God, and here he is committing murder. What's important for us to realize is, you know, David's sin is really just a stand-in for our own sins. How can we disobey God and continue sinning? I mean, haven't you ever thought after committing a sin, how did I do that? How did that happen? And what's, what's amazing and remarkable is often heinous sins come right on the heels of what sometimes is like this wonderful season of purity and righteousness where you've just been having a wonderful time with God. Your prayer life's in order. You've been reading your daily devotional. You know, you're, you're waving to your neighbor and everything seems to be going well. And then a sin seems to just come in under the door out of nowhere and you find yourself saying, what happened? What is interesting is in Hebrew, the word used for sin in this passage is crouching. It's crouching at the door. The New Testament reflects that language also. But part of the description of sin is something crouching at the door, just waiting for an opportunity to spring inside. It's like Maribel and I just moved into this place and there's a bug problem because no one's been there and we haven't hired a landscaper to like upset their home. And we've got bright lights and we haven't had blinds on. And, um, and so uh, every time we open the door, the bugs come in. You know, and I had to buy a bug light, and then I had, you know, spray, and we have to, but they're waiting right there at the door all the time, and I'll say, you know, come in, come in, come in, okay, and then they're on the ceiling, it's like, how did they get in here? They're like waiting at the door, and sin is like that. Sin is just waiting at the door for an opportunity to come in, and when it comes in, we often stand back saying, how did that happen? And it can make us feel ashamed. It can make us feel unworthy. It can make us feel like we're not worthy to be called Christians. And this is what happened to David, no doubt, after this sin is committed. The context of Psalm 51 is David hitting rock bottom. David has hit rock bottom when it's all been exposed, this act of wickedness. I mean, the covers have been pulled back. He's been revealed to be a sinner. And in trembling, he pleads for, he pleads for mercy and for grace and for help from God. Psalm 51 is a cry for help. It's a lament over his own sin and treachery. You know, sin is a type of treachery against God. And David has been treacherous against God's commandment. What's more, though, is it isn't all negative, at least for us reading this psalm, because it is a model of brokenness over sin. I mean, there's nothing like it in the Bible. It is a model of lament and brokenness and confession and repentance. It is an absolute model for us. And David cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a, a minty but bitter plant used in the liturgical services in the tabernacle, and the high priest would take hyssop, this minty bitter plant, and dip it in the blood of the sacrifice and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood from the hyssop plant on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And so David is using this language of purification and says, sprinkle me with hyssop. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. You know, bones are the the strength and the framework of the body. And at times, God figuratively and sometimes literally crushes bones to bring people off of and take them, lead them off of a path of sin. And this verse is figurative, but you know, sometimes it's not. Christian blogger Maureen Hager, now in her 60s, writes about a time when broken bones from God were an act of mercy. She says that following a misguided search for love and acceptance, she got caught up with a biker gang in her younger years. And she wanted to be free and escape, but she didn't know how. She said she was miserable, but she felt trapped. And looking back all these years later, she said, God in his mercy allowed me to become a victim of a shootout in a biker gang war. And she was hit with machine gun fire in her arms and her legs, and it literally destroyed the bones in her arm and in her leg. (coughs) She said they were bullets from M16 rifles. And she said they inflicted so much pain and suffering. She said the bones in my arms and legs were crushed. And at first I thought God was punishing me. And in the long months in the hospital, my heart began to soften. David's sin and repentance does not happen overnight. The Bible does this telescoping for us where it takes a story and it gives, us to, it gives it to us in this kind of like summarized form in a few verses. But in reality, this probably is stretched out over months and months. It is possible that, the, by, the, that by the time David actually prays this prayer of repentance, possibly three, four months have gone by. And maybe when he prays this prayer, a month has gone by after Nathan has confronted him where he's been in rock bottom and he doesn't know what to do. I can imagine that someone like David who has a mind and heart after God's own heart was probably at the verge of wanting to give up. Despair of life itself, maybe even suicidal But that's how much he grieved over his sin. It felt like his bones were broken. There was so much emotional and spiritual torment and grief and brokenness that he says, the bones that you've broken, God, let me one day have joy again and let the bones that have been broken rejoice. Do we feel ever that way when we sin? I I don't know that, that, that Christians today feel that kind of brokenness over sin. Now granted, I don't think anyone in here is a murderer, (coughs) but still, brokenness is the right response when we sin. And you know, we're rational people, and so we rationalize sin. 
we rationalize away our sin. We th- say things like, well, I'm not that bad. You know, it wasn't that bad. This person's worse than me. You know, we're rational people, especially in the West. We don't think we are, but we are. And so it kind of makes it uh, to where we don't fear God a whole lot. Well, yes, it's sin, but you know, God's not going to do anything about it. And that's just, that's just how we are as modern people. And I think all of those things can contribute to not ever really being broken over sin. And I just want to say, if you find yourself making, taking inventory and realizing that you're never broken over sin, that's worrisome. That's troubling. That we can sin with impunity and never really feel anything about it, that kind of numbness is alarming. Sometimes we say, well, God knows my heart. David, David said that and it made him afraid. Well, God knows my heart. God knows, you know, he knows I have a good heart. Yeah, I did this, but God knows my heart. And David says, oh, God knows my heart. Oh, oh God knows my heart. And that makes David afraid. That makes David worry. And he says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart. He realizes that his heart is not clean. His spirit is not right. Now in one sense, the heart and the mind are metaphors, the heart, the heart and the spirit are metaphors for the mind, but in a very real sense, he's recognizing that his own spirit has drifted from God's spirit. This is why this is a Pentecost text, because it is a longing for the Holy Spirit. It is a recognition that his own spirit has drifted from the spirit of God, and he says, create in me a clean heart and renew within me a right spirit. This statement where David says, cast me not away from your presence or take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know, the first thing to see is that this is the cry of a believer. This sin wasn't before David's conversion, but after. David was in his 50s when this happened. He wasn't some young buck, you know, in his 20s trying to find his way. He had been following the Lord for a long time, and I want to say for for those of us who've been Christians a long time, maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, um, those dangers are always still crouching at the door. In fact, more so for us who maybe have ceased to become diligent. I remember in California, there was a while I worked in a grocery store and it was next to an Air Force base, and I was talking to a guy who was a journeyman civilian electrician contractor, and we were talking about the dangers of electricity, and he said, do you want to know who dies? He goes, it's not the the apprentices. He says, it's the journeymen. The guys have been doing it for 30 years. They get fried on the job. I mean, literally. He says, because they're so, they're in such a habit of doing what they do that instead of shutting the power off and wearing all their safety gear, they just think they can go in and do it. And a month earlier from this conversation, one of the journeyman electrician on the job had died. And I won't go into all the gory details, but it was horrific. And he said, that guy had been on the job 27 years. Sin is one of those things that never quits. 
It, it never gives up. It's always, it's always looking for an opportunity, an entrance. And if we're not diligent, we often are complicit in sin's activity in our lives. <clears throat> now David cries out for God's presence not to be taken away. And I've heard people try to make a theological point about this, that, that David says, um, cast, not away, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. But that's not something we would pray today because in the Old Testament, God didn't give the Holy Spirit to people permanently, but now he does. And I just wanna say, like, um, I think that entirely misses the point. Maybe you've never heard that argument before, but p- people trying to get theological with this passage, they make that argument. And I think that completely misses the point because the fact is that David has committed murder. He's killed a man. He's not thinking theologically, but he feels the sobering conviction over the idea that his heart has descended so far into the depths of wickedness that he's far from God. He's killed someone. And he feels the pain and alienation that sin brings into the heart. At the deepest level, he is grappling with sin. He doesn't presume upon God's grace. Now, if you and I had committed murder praying, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, it would be the exact right thing to say. If you had committed murder, crying out to God not to cast me away from your presence or take your spirit from me, that'd be the exact right thing to pray. If you had killed someone, the wrong thing would be to just simply presume on the grace of God with an attitude. I mean, I'm talking about a presumptuous attitude, a presumptive attitude, like, well, God, I know God loves me. You just killed somebody. Well, hey, God loves me. I mean, that, that, that is not the heart wrestling with sin The heart wrestling with sin ought to tremble. The heart wrestling with murder ought to tremble in fear. Now, to get theological for a moment, David's salvation isn't in question at all. He doesn't say, please save me again because I just lost it. He says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so sin creates a crisis of joy because it taints the conscience. And when the conscience is tainted, it swallows up joy. It's hard to have joy when your conscience can't rest. You know, you could be going through all the trials in the world, but if you have a clear conscience, like you sleep well. You you have peace. And on the flip side, everything can be going fine. But if your conscience is tainted, you have no peace. And we know that happens all the time. We know that happens to people. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's nothing like having a good conscience toward God. And it doesn't mean that you've lived in such a way that you've been perfect that you know that you deserve God's blessings, but there is something about striving in obedience, striving to obey, and mortifying sin, right? Actively wrestling against the temptations in your life and fighting against those temptations and mortifying the deeds of the flesh, sometimes through a daily, the daily process of staring down temptations and saying, I mean, I've had to say this to myself, Lord, I love you more than I love this sin. I, I've had to say that out loud at times to myself, I love you more than I love this sin. Strengthen me right now. 
And David realized that for his spirit to become one again with God's spirit, he had to lament over his sin. And this may be the main point of this sermon, okay? If you don't take away anything this morning, I want you to take this away. Our spirit becomes one with God's spirit when we mourn over sin, when we're broken over sin. Our spirit is united with God's spirit when we feel towards sin what God feels, when we lament and mourn over it. And even sacrifices without a right spirit don't amount to much. Look at what he says. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Charles Spurgeon says, when the heart mourns for sin, God is better pleased than when the bullock bleeds beneath the axe. You gotta love Spurgeon. When the heart mourns for sin, God is more pleased than when the bullock bleeds beneath the axe. David's brokenness over sin was a gift of the Spirit. And on Pentecost today, one of the things the church celebrates is not just its birth and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the third member of the Trinity and all that stuff, that's good stuff, but it's the idea that God's Spirit is inside of us, working in us to convict us every day over our sins. It doesn't mean we won't ever sin, but the Holy Spirit means that we cannot sin with impunity. When we sin, we feel it. We're not numb to sin. Hopefully you are not numb to sin this morning. But the Holy Spirit inside of us means that when we do what's wrong, when we don't do what's right, we feel it. We feel that, that tension and alienation between us and God. Now, does God love us? Of course God loves us. Will he ever leave, forsake, or, aban- or abandon us? No, he won't. But just like a loving, committed marriage, when there is infidelity or some type of you know, alienation or sin between a husband and a wife, there is tension there. I mistreat my wife. I don't think necessarily she's going to pack up and leave that night, but I know that everything is not okay and we need to talk. And that's what sin does. Hopefully, when you sin, if there is a sin you've been struggling with, I hope in your mind, I hope the one thing you take away is when I go home today, I'm going to talk with God. And if I don't feel broken, I'm going to ask God to help me to feel broken. And that's completely legit. Lord, I don't know why, but this sin doesn't, doesn't grieve me like it should. Lord, help me to be grieved over it. That I can cry out to you in a broken spirit and a contrite heart because those are the sacrifices that God accepts. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Well, what's the, where's the hope in all of this? Well, if you've sinned, if you're sinning, if you're in a habit of sinning, or if there's a sin that you've been wrestling with, the path to inward assurance of God's forgiveness starts with brokenness. You may say, well, where is Jesus in all of this, Pastor Jordan? I haven't heard much about Jesus. 
Jesus took upon himself all of our sins. And it was such a heavy burden that it required not only his scourging and beating, but a horrific death on the cross. And so when you think about being broken about sin, you can think that it was our sins that sent Jesus to the cross. And when we sin with impunity, we sort of put the cross and the crucifixion, and we put Jesus to an open shame again. When we sin presumptively, presumptuously. God, give me the sacrifices we should pray. Give me the sacrifices of a broken and contrite spirit. And then, as David said, we can be assured that God will let the bones that he has broken rejoice. Let's pray. Father, now we do thank you for this good word. We thank you, Lord, that we have a model of brokenness and repentance before us in Psalm 51. And, Lord, we thank you that we are reminded that sin is no small matter, that sin sent Jesus to the cross, that you sent your Son to accomplish a work on behalf of your people, and that was sending him to be the ultimate sacrifice, a sacrifice for which, Lord, he died, and it is only through that sacrifice that we're saved. We pray now, Lord God, that you would help our hearts to recognize that continuing to make habits of sinning does not square with our confession of being children of God. Let us be broken over our sins and let us find restoration and healing only in your forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.